Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today sheltering from a rain shower in the Rusland Valley with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> Hello, David. I love rain. Which is lucky, given where we live, but I mean, really, this is four seasons in a day, isn't it, Mark? I think when, when you got up this morning, there was snow. Yeah, the first part of my journey was in a snowstorm. I can't believe it's May. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it lightened up and blue skies came out. Yeah. We got down to here and it started raining. And there's loads of snow on the tops. Two nights ago, it just poured down in the valley level and beautiful clarity and snowy peaks again. I can't believe it. The fell top assessors were stood down a few weeks ago yeah. and Hell Valley is covered in snow. Yeah, deep on that range as well. But anyway, we're not there. We're, we're south, and indeed south of Windermere. The notable thing about the Ruslan Valley really is its woodland. This is this valley pocketed between Coniston Water on the west side, Windermere on the east, if we go further north from here, we get to the huge forest of Grisdale, of course. But this little area, it's broadleaf trees, isn't it? Quite stunning. And of course, it's just starting to come out into leaf. Yes, at this time of year, the bluebells as well, which are creating a wonderful blue understory canopy. Now, today's podcast, Mark, is unique so far, I think, in that we are responding to a listener request. So we got an email at the end of last year from Sue Hall. Hello, Sue. And she said, I'm a fan of the podcast. I love learning more about our amazing landscapes and heritage. If it's not already on your radar, I think it'd be great for you to look at the Cumbrian traditions of coppicing, of managing woodland, look at the biodiversity, and think about some of the dying crafts that goes with these amazing histories. And we thought, yeah, no, that sounds great. Where do you find such things? And what's the answer there, Mark? Apparently it's Rusland in this magical valley. And so who are our guests today? We've got, well, we've got three guests. Marion Brown, who's from the Rusland Horizons venture. And we've got this wonderful couple, Joe Clayton and Daryl Calbrick. And Joe and Daryl, they live off-grid. They live in these woods, their own private woods that we're going to be walking around today. And their story is one of falling in love with the woods. It's one of fulfilling a lifelong dream. They now make a living from the woods, Mark. I get the feeling from my initial chat that um, Joe was the most uh, dynamic aspect of this. She, she was convinced that woodland life was the one to go for. So I'll be interested to see how she convinced Daryl. That story and more we will cover, and we'll have a little tour around their wood, look at some of the coppicing that's active here, look at some of the products that they're making and hear about their wonderful story in this secluded, relatively unknown pocket of Cumbria.
Well, we're in the midst of a wonderful wooded environment in the Rustland Valley. I'm by a pond with reeds in the midst of it and surrounded by a really lovely rich woodland with the leaves starting to come out. I can see through to the far hill, which I think probably is Finsweight Heights, I'm guessing a little. The birds are singing. It's clouded over, sadly, but I'm in the company of Marion Brown, Joe Clayton, and Daryl Kalebrick. And I'd like to find a little bit about you good folk. Uh, I'll start with Marion. You're involved with the Ruskland Horizons Trust. And how long have you been involved with that, Marion? Well, the project itself's probably been going for about five years, but I just became the chairman of the Trust in January, which is a exciting but a very big challenge. Um, and the Trust, which looks after um, the Valley and Fells of the Ruskland Valley, it's a community-led project. It arose out of a heritage lottery fund that was granted, which is a substantial sum of money, which was granted about four years ago. And the Trust is the legacy organisation that's taken on from the original heritage lottery fund, entirely member and community funded, to try and keep our precious woodlands and meadows healthy. Understandably. What is your background? Where do you come from? You've got a lovely Scottish accent. Yes, I'm originally from Lanarkshire, so just over the, over the border and heading towards Glasgow. But we moved up here and I set up my own little consultancy business here um, 15 years ago now when we fell in love with the, with the valley and decided we wanted to be here. Rusland Valley, which I find immediately endearing. Can you describe it to us, to somebody who's innocent of this place and never been before? Yeah, so the Rustland Valley and Fells, I think it's a bit of a hidden treasure, actually. It sits in between the bottom of Lake Coniston and Lake Windermere. Um, it's one of the most heavily wooded valleys in Cumbria, actually, and certainly in the Lake District. It's um, got a fantastic history of woodland working, um, of industrial heritage in terms of that, but also an absolutely amazing sort of ecosystem because it has remnants of Atlantic rainforest, which is quite a special habitat that doesn't exist in too many places in the world. That's a fascinating thought, isn't it, that this is that special. And when you drive into this valley, you immediately get the sense that trees dominate everything. Right, can I speak to you, Joe? Now you work in this woodlands. What kind of things do you achieve and craft here? Okay, so what we're trying to achieve is two different things. So there's the woodland management side of things. So we coppice the land, which is um, it's a traditional woodland management practice that, that happened here on this land. Um, and it's a regenerative practice. And from the wood that comes out from our coppicing work, we make crafts. So I make furniture, Daryl makes charcoal and charcoal products. And that's so we can make a living from the land and again that's a regenerative process that yes. means that we can keep managing the land that's it and you're not taking you're giving as well it's a balance you're trying to achieve first comes the woods first and foremost comes the woods and what needs doing here and then from that it's like okay what materials have we got and how can we use them it's totally that way around so this offers us lots of ideas and strands that we can explore and we'll stride on from here thank you for that lead in well would you believe it we've only just started and so is the rain but mercifully, we've all come equipped, and so we'll put up some umbrellas just to keep the show on the road. So, Joe, this is an environment that you particularly love. Can you chart the journey that led you to Woodlands? 
in my childhood, my dad's mum and dad, um, my grandma and granddad, had um, a house with woodland at the back of it, and my dad used to go shooting in that woodland. Mm -hmm. um, he would shoot animals, but he'd take me and my brother and we would shoot tin cans. We didn't do it loads, but I think that planted a seed, you know, of, of being in that wild landscape. And then I've always been drawn to woodland and kind of ended up in situations where I'm right there. I lived in Ireland um, for a few years. The place that I lived there, I was drawn to that because of the nature and um, had, had woodland right outside my window. So I could just climb out of my window <laughs> and um, be in the woods and communing with the trees and the deer. I don't know, I just keep finding myself in the woods. Fabulous. Daryl, is your journey similar? Um, I would say it's fairly different. Yeah, I mean, I grew up around here, so I've got a love of the area. I love the lakes. It really feels like home to me. And as I've got older, I love it even more, and I get out in it as much as I can. But the woodland, no, not really. I mean, until I met Joe, living in a woodland would seem like a cold and ridiculous idea to me. But when Joe did plant the seed in my head, it didn't take long for it to seem like a really good idea and an adventure that, you know, I wanted to jump into. And of course, you come to this from a completely different working environment. I do. It is totally polar opposites, probably. You know, my early career was asset finance, which is just a posh way of sort of saying financing things like cranes and wagons and stuff like that. And I did that for quite a long time and I did pretty well at it and it was great for a while but I left that job because I was looking for something else and it took a while for that something else to appear. So we'll chase the time forward to that moment when you had a dream to actually buy a woodland. How did that come about and what did that lead you? Yeah, again, it was an idea and a, and a dream. They can seem so far away when you first have these dreams. And it was my friend that's coming to stay today, actually. She's coming from Gloucester, my good old friend, Sheila Brown. I talked to her about it in, in a way of like, oh, but that couldn't happen. And she's a person that doesn't see barriers. And she said, well, why not? That could, that could happen for you. Why not? And... I think that got me thinking more seriously and and then just noticing that there were bits of land that came for sale and I think I'm quite a determined creature as well so once it became more of a a real thing in my mind then it probably wasn't going to go anywhere other than forward then. So Daryl what did you feel about it? Well I thought She's a force of nature and I want a bit of this. It's just seemed like an exciting adventure to go along with. I'd got divorced a few years ago and I had to sell my house, so I had some money. Joe had the vision and the dream and I had the money to put up and also we only get sort of one go in this life, don't we? And it just seemed like a great thing to do. So you discovered Great Lindeth Wood. What was the sensation when you first saw it, Joe? It was a bit mixed. Um... Did we come and it was kind of the light was going and we came with our dogs and we approached it from a strange angle and we ended up stumbling up this rocky hill full of bracken and we lost one of our dogs and it wasn't just like, oh, this place is so wonderful. I came back because you were not keen, were you? You were like, this is just ridiculous. We were stumbling about in the bracken, which was six foot high. 
getting covered in ticks and losing dogs and it wasn't really what I had in mind but it was good that Jo came back on her own and again she you know she can see through this stuff that I sometimes can't and I'm glad she can because it's an amazing place and I think Jo realised that. There were all sorts of things we didn't realise at first though we didn't know how amazing the bluebells were going to be here so you know that was a total treat. So, Daryl, how long have you actually been owners of this wonderful place? Uh, so, we bought it, I think it was 12 or 13 years ago now, which has gone pretty quickly, I have to say. And we didn't start managing it straight away. We just bought it. Um, and when we heard that we'd got it, it was like a sealed bid system. So, you just say how much you're prepared to pay. And uh, you don't know what anybody else is bidding or anything like that. So it's quite a nerve-wracking thing. And then the day that we found out was uh, exciting and scary in equal amounts. Well, the rain is still coming down, but it's actually abating sufficiently to spur us to actually have a bit of a stroll through this magical environment. I'm looking forward to this. We'll be hit onto a track now. We've come off the path. Still raining, sadly, Marion. But uh, I'm amidst birch and oak, and I can see a wonderful azure of bluebells just down below us. We're in a very special environment. Can you tell us about this Atlantic woodland? Yeah, so a lot of people have been really surprised to learn that there's rainforest in Cumbria. It's particularly interesting when you tell the kids at school um, that we've got rainforest because everyone thinks of the Amazon. And basically, the type of ancient woodland that's here, the habitat only exists in about 1% of the planet. It needs a particular climate system and the rain is part of that. So it's good that it's raining because it's not happy when it's dry. And it basically needs a good amount of rain, a very sort of stable humidity. So not too cold, not too hot, sort of fairly temperate. And then you'll get these oaks, you get birch, you get aspen, crab apples also um, an indicator. And then the bluebells, to me, are kind of a sign of health of the woodland because bluebells, um, wood anemone, wild garlic are all indicators of temperate rainforest of ancient semi-natural woodland like this. And also everything is smothered in moss and that's the other thing that you see here that you don't see in some other woodlands. And a lot of people think when they see a mossy tree that it's actually not very happy but actually it's a sign of amazing health of the tree and also of how clean the air is because the sort of lichens and mosses that are in um, Atlantic woodland need clean air and you won't see them in anywhere where there's a substantial amount of pollution. So they're actually a bit, I always say they're a bit like the canary in the coal mine. They tell us if these woodland is healthy or not healthy because if the lichen and moss isn't here, then there's a problem with the ecosystem basically. Has it always been like this? So the woodland has been here, you know, for centuries and actually the whole of the western seaboard of the British Isles really was smothered in this woodland originally. Cumbria is very lucky because a lot of the woodland wasn't worked terribly hard or was worked in such a way that it was supported as the woodland is, you know, in, in Joan Darrell's wood here. So it was able to regenerate, was able to carry on. A lot of woodland was cleared for building, for farming. Cumbria is very lucky and this valley in particular is lucky because we've got quite a connected woodland here. So there's lots of small woods, but they're all close enough together to be able to support each other. And amazingly, they do need each other in order to thrive because that's part of the, the way the root system works underneath. So there's some up in Borrowdale. We call it ancient semi-natural woodland, you know, to reflect the fact that really it was here long before any of us um, and hopefully we'll be here for centuries to come. Joe and Daryl, this is uh, something you live in and uh, you witness change and you see things happening that probably most people would be unaware of. 
when you're here day in and day out, um, you really do notice the little changes that might get missed if you're not here. And I think that really helps with knowing how to care for a woodland. But yeah, last autumn was a mast year and a mast year comes about every so often. And it's a time when the trees produce lots more seeds it's like a bumper seed year um, and it was definitely an oak mast year and what happens is the trees actually communicate with each other and they make this decision that this year we're going to produce loads more seed than normal and, and drop it all and that's to do with the balance between the predators and then the seedlings being able to grow so they want their young to grow up and not just get eaten by a deer so in normal years the trees will produce a certain amount of of seed and then they grow up to be seedlings and saplings the deer eat them and and that's the balance of things some may get away if you're lucky but on these mast years there's so much more seed produced that there's much more chance of those young seedlings and saplings growing up to be trees now this is such an amazing place for animals and birds i've just seen a jay fly over uh, daryl uh, what pretty birds and animals are you aware of I've been getting really into birds recently and I never thought I would. And there's jays, there's tree creepers, there's nuthatches, there's a buzzard that lives around here, maybe two, that you see quite often, a uh, sparrowhawk, and there's loads of woodpeckers actually just where we are now. There's three or four woodpeckers sometimes you see them. And obviously uh, butterflies in the coppice as well. Uh, lots of butterflies in the coppice. Bigger stuff, deer. Lots of deer. It's Ro- a d- that's roe deer, obviously. That's yeah. roe deer. There are red deer just up the valley that we're uh, slightly concerned that might be entering into our woods. Deer are a double-edged sword for us that we might go into later. Foxes as well. Foxes. The, the fact that you've got a mixed woodland, uh, young and old, means that the woodpeckers are tapping away on the dead trees and so on. They are, and I've been listening to them the last few weeks. It's quite interesting, the woodpeckers. It's not just any tree that they can use. They have to find an acoustic sounding board, so something that vibrates. So they've got to find the the absolute right bit on the tree where it's maybe a bit loose, where when they tap it, it then creates this sound that reverberates that we're used to, that we hear, around the woods. And it's fascinating that they have to find that perfect spot just to, um, I think it's either a territorial or a mating thing, isn't it? Um, Just to make that noise the woods yeah you come down the track a little way and in front of me there's a, a green caravan a distinctive looking little caravan with a shed attached this is home I believe yes it is home is a 1960s oak panelled pilot caravan and there's a porch attached to the back so that's a, an outdoor space to sit in, enjoy nature but without getting rained on. Over the years we've tried to make it as sustainable as possible with regards to power and water and when I say sustainable I mean sustainable for us as well as for the environment so we can actually function here um, over a longer period of time. So for electric we use solar which does us for quite a lot of the year, actually, even in Cumbria. For the winter months, we will use a sort of small generator, which is as efficient as we can sort of get with that. Um, and for water, we we didn't realise when we bought the woods, but we we're lucky enough to have an amazing 
beautifully constructed, I presume Victorian well. So it's like a six or eight metre well in the woods and it's still in perfect condition that we didn't even know we had when we bought the woods. So we get our water from there and uh, we've been drinking that for as long as we've been here and we're not dead yet. No. <laughs> How far away is the well from your home? Quite a way away. It's five minute walk, let's say, something like that. So we have to sort of fetch water in. The off-grid living is... It's a lot of work um, and it adds to the workload, definitely. You know, whether it's fetching or carrying water or checking on the batteries. And it, it's a constant thing in the background that we have to do. Personally, I love it. Um, maybe not sometimes when it's chucking it down in the winter, but most of the time I like that feeling of us producing our own power. And it makes you so much more aware of how much power you're using and that type of thing. And I like that connection with it. And you cope with it as well, Joe. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's not always ideal, you know, if it's chucking down and you've got to go outside um, to the, we collect rainwater as well, to the water butt to fill your kettle to do the washing. Um, and then you've got to sweep the floors and build the fires. So it's time um, and energy consuming, but there's a joy in that primitive way of being as well. It's just, um, I don't know, it's simpler. I see you've got a hammock as well think I've, I've been in there for about five minutes so far um, this year and I, I got in it and fell asleep instantly it was a glorious five minutes and then uh, what happened you came along and asked me some questions I think I, I, think I gave you something to do you did yeah. you did it's the nature of woodland people there's <laughs> always something to do you live and work in the woods but you can trace that pattern of life over many centuries strictly the valley has an amazing history of this as well, as well as farming. We had a lot of industry here, in particular, obviously, working with the wood. So we have in the valley um, one of the few restored tanneries that's left in England because oaks can be peeled for their bark, which is then used in the leather-making process. Charcoal, uh, charcoal burning, very common here. We've got a number of old pitsteads that, as part of our project on Russland Horizons, we did a lot of industrial archaeology in conjunction with the National Park to identify all these amazing historic sites that we have here. Charcoal burning is a very old, very traditional methodology and it's basically used to create fuel that's then used for furnaces. Um, we had a gunpowder works here, believe it or not. You can't really see too much of the remnants that are left there and charcoal was a key component needed in the creation of, of gunpowder. Some of the woodland here, some of the wood was taken out and actually taken up to Scotland. It was sailed up the coast and then taken into Loch Awe, actually, to Bonaw Foundry. So there's a link, a direct link between here and up in Scotland. And it's because Scotland had run out of trees at that point. Some of the wood that was taken out was also used for bobbin making. I think we probably had almost maybe half a dozen bobbin mills, I think, in the area, in the overall South Lakeland area at one point. Um, we have a restored bobbin mill, again, further up in the valley. Um, so that's a, a very um, special technique to create these wonderful little tools that were then used in the threading industry. And that lasted a long time in the valley. One of the last bobbin mills, I think, was probably still going in the 60s. So big employer as well. I mean, much of this was the employment that people had in the area. One of the other um, interesting histories is obviously moving the logs out of the forest is not an easy task around here. And if you could see, you'd see that we've got some very steep fells here. Um, so traditionally, horses were used to remove the timber. And we do still have a couple of local people who've kept that tradition alive. So you can still see horses um, moving timber out of these forests that are still being worked. It's a tradition that's been maintained within the area. It's a less damaging way than bringing wood out on massive tracks um, and causing damage to the to the underlying infrastructure of the of the forest. We had that with Bill Lloyd. We had the pleasure of him telling us about 
his one horsepower working around the woods, which is, it's a magical thing. I, I would love to see more horses come back. Mm. Would you believe it, Marion? It started raining again. These Atlantic rainforests, as it were, <laughs> have their impact on us. Well, we'll walk a little further and probably find a, a sunny glade. Would you believe it? That sunlit glade, it's not come, but the rain has and it's persisted. So we've backtracked into the shelter of that little home that we mentioned a little earlier. In front of us we can see the evidence of uh, particular charcoal burning containers. Daryl, can you explain them to us? Uh, yeah, this is the area in the woods where I make charcoal which is carrying on the tradition of hundreds of years. So we've got two kilns here. Um, one is a ring kiln for making barbecue charcoal, and the other is a cone kiln, which is um, used for making biochar for gardens to uh, use in compost and put into soil. And it also we use it to make animal gut health charcoal as well. There is a process to this. We start with coppicing, the woodland management practice that we're doing here. More specifically here, we're doing coppice restoration because it hasn't been coppiced for quite a long time, decades. So a lot of the coppice has got quite big and there's a lot of overstood trees and that's basically just bigger trees that are shading out the coppice. And coppice, just to explain, is just where if you cut a tree down and you just leave the stump, some trees, quite a lot of trees, hazel specifically around here, but many other trees will as well, um, will coppice. And all that means is there are little shoots that come out from the stump and these shoots grow into poles. So you'll see 10, 20, 30 poles coming out of one stump and that is a coppice stool. And if you cut that coppice and let it grow again, you can keep doing that forever. So you can keep a coppice stool alive for thousands of years and some may well be. If you don't cut it over a long period of time, the coppice stool will eventually die. So hence why we're doing coppice restoration to try and keep that cycle of the coppice growing and us cutting it. So the coppicing itself leads on to the charcoal making. When we cut the coppice and when we fell the trees that are shading out the coppice, the wood that we get from that management, um, we then use to make charcoal, some of it anyway. So you get the wood and ideally you want to uh, let it dry. You don't really want to make charcoal from very wet wood. Um, so we'll split it and let it dry. And then there's certain traditional ways that you stack the kiln so you can get airflow in there. But basically to turn wood into charcoal, you're not burning the wood, you're baking it. A lot of the volatile materials, what's called organic volatile materials that are in uh, the wood, get burnt off and that gets burnt off as gas that you would see if you've just got wood on a fire but what's left is just the carbon some people might not have heard, heard the term biochar or if they have they might not know what it is precisely but it's basically charcoal that is suitable for soil it's a charcoal that you can mix with your compost or you can put directly in the soil it creates better soil health over the long term and that's the key thing over the long term because unlike most things that you put in your garden that rot down over a few years biochar will stay in the soil for decades hundreds of years and it performs a number of functions in the soil water retention 
So it helps soil drying out in dry periods and it also helps waterlogging in wet periods as well because it's got such a high surface area. And that high surface area comes from all the nooks and crannies that were in the wood that still remain when it becomes charcoal. Is there a sort of a evidence of this elsewhere in the world? If you look up Terra Preta, um, which is, I think, Portuguese for black earth, and that is the soil that they found, I think it was in the 80s, they found all along the uh, Amazon River, they found these pockets of really fertile soil where people had settled over thousands of years, where people lived, basically. Normally, counterintuitively, the Amazon doesn't have very fertile soil because the rain washes the nutrients out of the soil. But where these settlements have been and where people have been using fires and then the remnants of those fires, the charcoal that's left, that have been putting into the earth over a long period of time, had created these really high fertile pockets of soil. And uh, the people that discovered this wanted to know why this was the case and started looking into how the charcoal actually worked and, and why it was stopping the soil from becoming infertile like in the other areas. And it's because the charcoal really helps to hold on to the nutrients so the rain won't wash the nutrients out. And that goes for us using it today in our gardens. Peat is still used in gardens. It scares me that it still is, to be honest. We're wanting to use more eco-friendly and environmentally friendly products in our gardens. And biochar not only, uh, well, it sequesters carbon, so it's carbon negative. So you're putting carbon into your garden and it's staying there, it's locking that carbon up. Of course, Joe, the coppicing of the wood has other applications and you brought your flair to this. So what sort of artisan things have you created? Well, I make furniture and heritage crafts and my furniture is... Um, rustic furniture so we we coppice the hazel sometimes that's quite small diameter poles and what I love about them is the beauty of that bark the beauty of the bark and the natural wiggle so that's what I work with is the nature and so I don't strip the bark off I don't cleave the wood to make it into a different shape I just choose the bits that I find most beautiful and make those into stools at the moment um, and then I upholster them it's a take on a woodland craft it's an enhanced woodland craft I would say and then there's some heritage crafts that I make as well. Um, so things like the Sussex Pimp and Gypsy Flowers, they are beautiful ornamental objects that people would have in their home, but they both stem from firelighters. So the Gypsy Flowers were made by the Gypsy community who worked moving about. So they might have done farm work at certain times of year and forest work as well. And then in the periods where they weren't working directly on the land they will be making things and selling them door to door gypsy flowers um i don't know if you've seen one but it, it's basically it's a hazel pole and you using a two-handed knife called a draw knife and a shave horse to clamp the wood so you've got your two hands free you draw shavings from the wood but you don't bring those shavings right off the wood you leave them on there you keep doing it you keep turning your wood and then you get this beautiful ball of curly wood and if you do it in a certain way you can make it look absolutely gorgeous excellent fire lighter but stick a hole in it stick a stem on it it's an absolutely beautiful flower 
And then these, the pimps that I make, uh, strange word, um, they were um, also used as fire lighters. It's a slender hazel stick that's split into two and then a bundle of birch bark twigs. And do you know that the birch bark holds oils? So it's a really flammable thing. So it's a really good fire lighter. They're bundled up with tarred twine and then 25 of those bundles are made into one larger bundle. And the word pimp, I've recently learnt it's an old language thing. So it's a counting thing that was used for counting sheep. So yes. the counting from one to five. It's five. Do you know? You know yes. it, yeah. Yan so tether mother pimp. Yeah, yan tan tether mother a pimp. I love saying it. And a pimp has got 25 bundles. Pimp pimps. It's five ah. fives. And now I can't do things not in five, so I've got to make five at a time and it's a pimp, let's stick with pimpishness. <laughs> Absolutely. If you can keep decimalisation, we'll go to pimps yeah. every day. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a shop at Grisdale Forest. It's a brilliant workshop space, but it's also a place where I can present my stuff. Um, so it's not just online and people can come and have a look. Are, are there lots of people operating there? It's a lovely thing, actually. There's a little maker's row. You wouldn't necessarily notice it. Um, it's, it's right by the visitor centre. Who needs the high street when you can go to Grisdale Forest? Exactly. <laughs> to do what you've done so successfully uh, requires knowledge, of course. Daryl, you came from finance, uh, and Joe, you came from working with children and so forth. How do you make that transition and learn the skills that actually make this all economic? Uh, that's a good question. And the short answer is the learning curve has felt really steep for quite some time. It's maybe starting to level off now, thankfully. But um, we've been just really lucky that around here there is a local community of people like there are other charcoal burners so I, I for instance I've been on a charcoal making course locally so we've gained a lot of knowledge locally and from actually doing it and going on courses and and being supported by other people that are doing similar things around here or organizations like Rustland Horizons as well. There's people are really passionate about that heritage um, not disappearing. There's organisations like the Coppice Association North West here and there's the Bill Hogarth Memorial Apprenticeship Trust. So we can tap into that wealth of knowledge and, and everybody is really friendly and really willing to help. So like Daryl said, the learning curve has been enormous, hasn't it? And it's 33 acres we're managing here and there's some big stuff as well, you know, uh, like felling large windblown trees and just so much to learn but there is so much knowledge and like I say people are willing to share it and it's it's really important to keep that knowledge there. There's no competition because it's the opposite of competition. They want you and them and everybody else to flourish in this setting and to make this place come alive. Yeah, exactly, because we're all about the same thing, which is looking after our woodland habitat. I can't emphasise how important it is for us that this isn't a hobby. This is a living for us, and we're so focused on trying to make this a sustainable living it's a circular thing so we cut the coppice we get the materials joe makes her products i make the charcoal and out of that we make money and that allows us to live live here but it allows us to pay all our bills as well 
which means we can stay here and keep on managing the woods, which then gives us more materials, etc., etc. So it's so important for it to, yeah, genuinely make a living. And it's not easy, but we're very focused on making that happen. And it's, you know, we're there pretty much. You've been here for 10 years. How long has it taken you to get to the point of getting over the threshold economically? Uh, it's taken quite a while. And it feels like we've been working hard for those 10 years, but... It's only fairly recently, over the last few years, that economically it started to make sense for us. Mm. Previously, there's infrastructure to put in, even if that's just a woodland track, so we can manage the woods sensitively without making lots of mess everywhere. And so there's all that kind of initial work that you have to do. We had to put a track in, we had to build a barn, we had to buy an alpine tractor and winch and wood processing stuff, the kills. There was a lot of money that we had to earn before the project even really started here, just to get going. And now, yeah, we're managing to earn a living, but it's it's a low living. It's not a regular person's wage where, you know, you get to eat out at restaurants or go to cafes. We, we earn what we need, and we don't need a lot more than what we've got here because it's gorgeous here, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that we're not just trying to reenact what's gone in the past, craft-wise or charcoal-making-wise. You know, I think we're genuinely trying to move it forward, bringing it into the 21st century. So it's not just something like we're a museum, a working museum piece. You know, Joe's furniture, it's beautifully upholstered. That didn't go on in the past. I'm making different charcoal products that weren't made here. That was a learning process in itself. What works and what doesn't work. So we started off by doing fairly traditional stuff like selling firewood and barbecue charcoal and that was okay wasn't it you know you can sell as much firewood as you want to you don't even have to advertise it but it wasn't sustainable we couldn't keep pumping out that volume of wood so we needed to work out ways where we could work with the right amount of wood that we're taking out from the woodland management to then selling products that bring in a greater income that use less wood. So that's taken quite a bit of learning and honing and we feel that we're there now with the, the products that we've got to offer, don't we? It's gorgeous. The sun is doing us justice now. It's fabulous and... Uh... We were on a, a lovely sheltered spot, but on a shelf overlooking a drop away across the valley. There's a multi-layer of woodland here that we're witnessing, and there's bluebells, which are absolutely gorgeous. Now, what we've got here is something of an issue, because in order to create the multi-layers... Uh, you've had to keep the deer at bay and here deer have a big impact on woodland and how have you coped with that Daryl? Well the short answer is it's very difficult Um, I mean where we are now in the woodland just to explain we're at our first coppice coop that we cut and a coppice coop is just an area where we cut the coppice stools that I was explaining about earlier and so when it's cut we then fence that area. Here, specifically in our woodland and in the Rustland Valley, there's a big uh, deer problem and they will eat all the new growth unless you fence it. So it's key for us to fence this. And in this particular area where we've done it, it's a stark contrast. And you can see there's lots of lush growth. It's done really well, the coppice coop that we've fenced. And in the section where we didn't fence, we haven't got any new stuff growing apart from a little bit of holly. 
yeah. uh, which the deer tend not to like so much. And I think it's fair to say, Joe, isn't it, that it's probably one of our biggest problems is deer eating new trees and the new growth from coppice stools. Yeah, massively. It's um, it's hard. They're beautiful and we love seeing them. We're never going to stop being delighted about that. It's really difficult because they are so destructive. They eat everything and sometimes when they don't eat something they'll still damage it by the browsing you know when the, the young bucks have got their antlers and they develop this fur on their antlers and they get rid of that by um brushing their antlers again i'm doing this now but you can't see this yeah. <laughs> but they rub their antlers on um a young whippy um pole and and that rubs the fur off them so they'll they'll damage the bark there, so the tree can die anyway. And uh, Marion, deer generally in this valley are a great issue. Yeah, we, we have a huge problem um, with the number of deer in the valley. And as Joe said, we, we love them, they're beautiful, but there is a balance to be had. And unfortunately, the balance is completely out of all proportion at the moment. And one of the ways I always describe it to people is that if we don't control the deer population and allow our woodlands to, to regenerate and grow, we're basically going to have a load of aging grandfather trees no parents and no children and you know in 50 years time we won't have this woodland that we have at the moment so it's hard decisions that have to be made and the other problem is you can fence and fence and fence but that leaves less and less territory for the deer to work in so you just get increasing damage in the areas where there isn't fencing so it's not a solution to just fence everything um, you know and obviously there's no apex predators other than stalkers for deer Unfortunately, this year in particular, um, and this has happened in Scotland as well, because of the, the sort of closures over the last year, then venison's not actually in great demand. Um, so we obviously would only want to, to reduce the deer numbers if they can be sustainably used afterwards. And at the moment, that's you know not been the case. So that's been a challenge as well. We think we have approximately 300 deer in this valley, which is probably about 200 more than it can sustain. <laughs> Isn't that a thought? If you take all your apex predators out, you know, this is what happens. Nature gets out of balance. So what sort of practical solutions are you engaged in then, uh, Daryl? We have a professional stalker that comes in and shoots the deer. So he gets to know the land and knows which deer to take, whether that's the weak ones. For instance, um, if there's a, a strong buck that is on the land, he wouldn't take that. The strong buck stops other bucks coming in. So it's not just a case of you shoot the deer. You're working with the population of the deer. The stalker will get to know it and take out the correct deer to get to maintain that balance. And also, I'd like to say that, from my point of view, it's the most ethical meat you can eat, you know, because the deer are living their lives being wild right up to the point where they get shot. And um, it's really good for you as well. It's, it's really lean meat. There's a lot of talk now about planting trees and creating new forests, and, and that's brilliant. But I only have heard people saying we're going to plant a tree or we're going to need to plant more trees but it's not about planting trees it's about growing trees so those trees have to live otherwise you've wasted so much energy and money so the tree needs to be planted and that's probably the easiest bit and then it's got to be looked after so whether that's fencing um, or management pest control because there's rabbits there's lots of animals that will, will eat saplings but those saplings have got to be looked after until they grow to a point when they can look after themselves what are the actual indicators of a healthy woodland i can look at these trees around me and because i know you're looking after it in a specific sort of way 
I feel it's healthy, but how can I, as a, an independent person, look at a woodland and say, yeah, that's got vigour in it? Multi-layer structure to the woodland is really important. So like Marion was saying, you've got all these grandparent trees and that might be what people are used to seeing in a woodland or a depiction of a woodland uh, landscape in a painting. But it's that multiple structure that shows that you've got the middle-aged trees and the young trees and then on the ground you've got flowers and tiny saplings and mosses as well. It's that structural layered thing that you should be seeing, not just big trees and then grass. And that lower layer, I'll just jump in there, Joe. that lower layer is key for habitat as well and biodiversity. When we do do a coppice coop and the new growth comes through, it's very bushy and it creates a lot of um, cover for birds and butterflies love it as well. But the birds are flitting in and out because they feel safe in there. And so that lower level, that lower story provides a great habitat for birds and butterflies and more in general, better biodiversity in the woodland. Yeah. I think the final thing to say on that as well is an untidy wood is a healthy wood, I think. You know, dead wood, so if we look around here, there's fallen branches, there's dead wood. People might say, oh, look, at this, it's all a bit messy. That's exactly the sort of habitat that's needed for the invertebrates, for the small creatures. So when you see a wood and it's really tidy, and also when there's a lot of space, it's probably really bad news. <laughs> Well, you've told us all about this magical thing of living off-grid and actually working in a woodland. There may be listeners who think, hmm, this is something I'd like to explore. Is there any advice you'd like to give them? I'm not sure about advice particularly, but it's, um, yeah, it's probably a thing that a lot of people might dream about. And I think it's about being determined and focused and if it, if you really really want something then start to try and make that a, a reality because it's only by starting down a path that you can get somewhere my short answer is it's not easy uh, but it's rewarding and yeah joe's right you've got to put it out there otherwise nothing happens you know and you've got to believe it but you know even if you like, haven't got the money you can still get into woodland management you can learn about woodlands you can still get connected with it and that might lead you down the path to where you ultimately want to go you've been here 13 years how does it make you feel operating in this environment and living here um i feel like a part of it and know it so well i feel like i know every tree and emerging sapling and it gives me a great nurturing potential. I think having something to nurture is is really important in life. Um, so, yeah, I feel a part of it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just I feel privileged that I'm in this position. I have to pinch myself sometimes because I never thought I would. It's a privilege and uh, a joy, and it, it's exciting still, even after 13 years. I'm still full of excitement and I think that for me that's kind of, uh, you know, I'm 50 now and I've got more excitement than I've had ever in my life so uh, that's how it makes me feel. Fantastic, isn't it? Right, we've come to that stage in the podcast that uh, always brings out something a little bit different from our guests. Our quick fire questions. 
Joe, what was your first Lakeland memory? Yeah, my first Lakeland memory was coming to Windermere um, when I was probably 20 with my boyfriend and uh, we stayed in a hotel. It chucked it down and I remember the photograph as much as anything, which was me just laughing my head off in the pouring rain by the lake. My first Lakeland memory is coming up as a family when we lived down south and I think my mum and dad were scouting about for, for buying a house and... I don't know when it was, but When Doves Cry by Prince was on the radio, so you can probably date it by that. And we came up to see Mardale. It had been really dry, so Mardale Village, a village that was flooded in Horswater Reservoir, um, it was so dry that you could see that, that village. So we came up, and, and that's my first likely memory of seeing that, and also thinking how great Prince is. You know, I, sh- I probably should have mentioned that fact I was wearing uh, in that photograph bleach blonde hair, bright red lipstick, leather biker's jacket. I mean, no, it's just too so late. different. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vivid memories. Yeah. Joe, have you got a favourite fell that you would identify? It's not the most dramatic, but I like Wandsfell because it's, um, I find it really accessible and it's something that you can walking half a day I don't get lost there I'm quite good at getting lost um, so yeah it's a it's a manageable mountain without too much peril and there's a great pub part way around is that the golden rule with the mortal man mortal man yeah Daryl have you got a favourite mountain in the Lake District am I allowed a few I like uh, the Kentmere Horseshoe I really love I'm Wanting to run around it one day. I did promise myself I'd do it when I was 40, but I'm about 10 years late at the moment. But what I love about it is when you're at the end of the horseshoe and you look around, you get total perspective of the whole Lake District. So you can tie all those bits together where, oh, that's over there and that Lake's Allswater. Oh, and I can see that. And so that's why I like that. It's, uh, it ties it all together for me. Gift of geography, doing these high routes like that, that's one of the great gifts. Joe, have you got a what you might call a favourite Lakeland day? Well, it would definitely have to involve um, scone with jam and cream. I remember we went to um, Blackwell House on my birthday once and we had a scone and cream and uh, just, you know, soaked in the day. So not a very active day. Luxury beyond avarice. Yeah. Wonderful place. Daryl, what is your perfect Lakeland day? Uh, well, it'd probably start with Joe getting up and making me a milky coffee in the morning. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often. Uh, and then it would probably involve a run up a fell somewhere um, because I just love that. I find it so gorgeous running in the fells. Uh, and maybe a dip if I'm brave enough, but I'm not, I don't stay in for long uh, in one of the lakes. And then it would probably have to involve a pint of loaves or gold somewhere. You've got it absolutely to the T there. I love that. Daryl, who would be your Lakeland hero, living or dead? Um, well, I was going to try and think of like one of the sort of really great fell runners like Billy Bland or someone like that. But actually, I think it's Walter Lloyd, uh, who I think you did a podcast with Bill Lloyd. Um, and I think it's his dad. And he... Uh, was the most amazing he died fairly recently in his 90s and he was the, had the most amazing energy and drive and vitality about 
managed, he managed woods and worked in the woods. A year before he died, or less than that, he was planning some sort of crazy Mediterranean yachting trip, you know, and I just love that. Uh, energy and and spirit of life. Uh, so that would, he would be my hero, I think. Yeah. Sounds absolutely remarkable. Well, when the day comes, and in your both your cases, I can see that's going to be a long time hence. But when the day comes and a few friends gather and wish to scatter your ashes or your bones to be buried, Joe, have you got a place in mind? Uh, somewhere not too far from here, um, like maybe here uh, in the woods. Um, we've buried a dog here and we've scattered the ashes of another dog. I'd like to be buried actually, just back into the earth, be part of that cycle. Yeah, by bury the dog and the cherry tree. So for you, Daryl? It would be in the woods, but years ago I would have said I want my ashes scattered here, but I'm a bit like Joe, I don't want to be cremated anymore. I want to make myself useful and be buried, get eaten by worms and contribute for once. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Where we buried our dog, it was a great thing to do. The vet from just across the road came and put our dog down when it was the right time, and then we spent the day digging a hole and which felt cathartic and we buried him there i think we put some biochar in there as well and we planted a, a cherry tree and uh, it's just started flowering journey's end and we find ourselves faced with a, a load of nets of firewood which is uh, some of the output of the woods and between the rain showers we've had a, a lovely wander and fascinated to get this glimpse into a life lived in the woods. Yeah we did a circular walk and we discussed the circular life of a wood as well. Mm. Absolutely fabulous. I love woodlands. In fact, I live in a woodland, but nowhere near as vibrant and as dynamic as this one. And Joe and Daryl, what a lovely couple. They genuinely lead the life with passion and realism, and they've learned how to make it work. And, uh, and it takes some time, but the rewards, they shine in their eyes. Yeah, they're lovely little... Um off-grid habitation you got a chance and we have sitting on the veranda just looking out over the lovely expansive woods pretty perfect to my eyes but i'm sure it's incredibly hard work and i'm sure there's times of the year where actually solid walls might not be a terrible thing no, no televisions here <laughs> no, I think I would miss Netflix a little bit too much. Uh, but also Marion brought a lovely uh, insight as well about the wider community. And when, what's fascinating for me, Mark, about this area, which I didn't know much about at all, I have to say, is there seems to be a very vibrant community of people highly engaged in the land. Mm. And particularly in woodland. And they've got these uh, apprenticeship schemes going that has led to a load of young people coming and working here uh, in a sustainable way. I, I found it very energising, actually. Yeah. It just is a, a living part of what many landscapes will have been like mm. before agriculture has gone the big cult agricultural way that it had. Many landscapes had working woodlands in them yeah. that, that have gone, yes. and we need to get them back. 
Yeah, there's a kind of back to the future pioneering spirit, isn't there? Reclaiming old heritage. But as Daryl said, and quite rightly, I think, we're not just doing the old stuff, we're moving it forwards as well, which um, felt like an important part of the story to me. I highly recommend a visit here, and Marion flagged up a series of walks that they've published to get to know this fabulously wooded landscape uh, if you're interested and, and don't know the area particularly well. Um, our usual housekeeping, this is episode number either 54 or 55, depending on <laughs> what happens next, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You can find all previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. If you enjoy what we do, please do get in touch, say hello, and or give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider of choice so that we can rocket up their algorithms. Um, we're on social, Mark. At Countrystride 1, Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, we post up a load of pictures there as well, so um, if you want to get a feel for what the woods here look like then they're the place to look um and i think that's it for now i'm not sure we know what we're doing we've got two or three things brewing yes but sure as shot we'll be back on that note we'll say goodbye for now and we look forward to you joining us on the next country stride